Today on Radical Personal Finance is live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Did you know that my wife and I talked a long time, whether I should say 10 years or less, because it's grammatically incorrect. (laughs) And I hate the fact that it's grammatically incorrect, but hey, it sounds better than 10 years or fewer. So whether it's fewer or less, I am here to serve. I tried it out on her one time. I was like, hey, here's the new tagline for this show. Um, live a better life. Um, oh, hold on. Now I completely forgot it. Um, in 10 years or fewer, we went over it again and again. 10 years or fewer. And even though that's correct, we both decided it didn't quite have the same ring to it. Today we do live Q&A. That means that we have a phone number and I go to the phone calls and I say hello and I answer your questions. Uh, basically, it's like a live radio show. You get it about an hour after I uh, record it and publish it. We're doing a special series of shows here at the end of 2018, uh, recording a special series of live Q&A shows. These shows are still available to you. They will be each day uh, fri- from Monday, December 17th, all the way up through Friday, December, I think it's 21, uh, each day at noon Eastern time. If you'd like to get on a live Q&A show, jump in and call. Just call 561-440-7362 at noon Eastern time, and you will be able to participate in that live Q&A. Ask me any question you want. Talk about any topic you want uh, that is available to you. So 561 at noon Eastern time each day this week, Monday through Friday. We begin with Mike in Kentucky. Welcome to the show, sir. How can I serve you today? Hi, thanks, Josh. Thanks for taking my call. Um, The question I've got, my wife and I gross about $180,000 a year, and we have about $30,000 going to retirement and $33,000 going to an after-tax brokerage account, $8,000 going to 529s. My question is, my wife is planning on leaving her job in about three years. She's self-employed, and she's probably just going to be a stay-at-home wife and mother. Um, I owe 96000 on a mortgage, which is 3.6%. Should I focus on paying it off or building the brokerage account and delay making the decision for three years? Are those your two options? Is either you focus on paying off the mortgage or you focus on investing in the brokerage account? That's my two options at the moment. Okay. And if you, how much money do you have available in your cash flow to put towards one of these two options each year? Um, I can put, well, I can put the entire 33000 to to either the mortgage or to the, um, to like an investment account. But, so let me just clarify. So you are considering either you're considering stopping the $33,000 to the brokerage account and putting that towards the mortgage. You're not talking about any additional savings. Is that right? Correct. Okay. 3.6% is fixed. Is that right? Yes. And how much of the $180,000 uh, is represented by your wife's earnings? Uh, 45000 Man, it's hard to it's hard to to answer that question because 
in absence they're just not there's not a super compelling technical answer that I could that I could see just in those simple facts that you've given me it's going to come down to what do you feel better about in my observation it's probably going to come down to what you feel better about so 3.6% fixed rate mortgage it's hard to say that that's a very expensive problem you obviously have plenty of cash flow and you have investments where this is not going to make a big difference in your overall uh, financial situation one way or the other. It's not like you're teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. And if you just had a paid off house, then you could accomplish things with the fact that you'll still have $135,000 household income, even if your wife stops earning income, that means that you're still going to be able to live fairly comfortably and you're still going to be, um, well, you're still going to be able to live fairly comfortably. Um, so uh, you're not going to go in the poor house and, and paying off the mortgage is not going to be a very compelling thing that's going to completely change your life. How old are you guys at this point? So I am 44 and she's 42. I, I, am I missing something? If your house were paid off, would that change something dramatically for you? Um, not necessarily. It just means I wouldn't have a house payment. And would that benefit you in some way? For example, would you drop the insurance coverage because your mortgage company no longer requires it? Or would that somehow, you know, allow you to change your job uh, and go to something that you've always wanted to do where you're going to earn $50,000 a year or any anything dramatic like that? Um, no, not really. The uh, I, guess, I guess the advantage, you know, I grew up kind of listening to Dave Ramsey. And so mm -hmm. I, got this, I got this thought process in my head of like I'm supposed to pay the mortgage off, but um, I lean against that at this point. And um, that's where I've kind of come up with this strategy where it's like, well, I'll bank this money in three years from now. I'll either decide to pay it off or not pay it off. Or at that point, I'll owe another three years on the mortgage. Yeah. So then I may just let it ride out. Yeah, um, I, I, I kind of came up with the same, I came up with the same, I guess, thought process you did. Yeah. It's not really an easy answer. Yeah, you're right in kind of the middle zone. And for other listeners, let me just talk through how I'm thinking about the problem. When somebody is young in their life cycle, when if you're 30 years old or you know 35 years old, uh, you have young children, things like that. Well, man, not having a mortgage payment is so helpful because that gives you flexibility. There are many families where mom could stay home with the children if they didn't have a mortgage payment. And so things like that could be very compelling and say, hey, let's get rid of this mortgage payment. That'd be really, really compelling. But you're 44. Now, on the flip side, uh, which means that you're past that early stage of life, your your lifestyle is fairly established and stable at this, at this phase. Now, on the flip side, at 60, 64 years old, if somebody's looking towards retirement, then we can do the analysis and say, is it of any value to have the house paid off? Or is it perfectly reasonable to have a mortgage payment on the house? I generally discourage retirees from focusing first on paying off the house because by definition, if you're able to retire, you have enough money to pay for your, your expenses. And so having a paid off house is not that big of a deal for retirees as long as they have other cash. Well, that doesn't apply to you either because you are in that middle zone. Sometimes it comes into play with lifestyle factors. As I stated, maybe if you didn't have a mortgage, you would be able to go and become a traveling artist. <laughs> well, you haven't mentioned anything like that. So 
I don't see how your lifestyle is going to be impacted one way or the other. For some people, it comes down to um, financial calculations. If you had a, a 15% mortgage or a 12% mortgage or some other high interest rate or some bad loan, something like that, then that in that consideration, it would we could we could say, well, you know what? Let's not. Um, uh, let's not pay. Let's pay that off because it's a very high interest rate. We've got three point six percent fixed, and at this point, from what I'm guessing, although I haven't confirmed it from your amortization schedule, you're near the end of that mortgage. So all your payments now are principal. So you're not even paying that much interest. That means that your interest um, potential for interest deductions, things like that, are not particularly valuable. So there's a mark in favor of um, of paying it off. Um, you're in the state of Kentucky, uh, or at least that's what my um, er- that's what your area code says. When the state of Kentucky you don't have um, an unlimited homestead exemption. You have about a $5,000 homestead exemption. So from a perspective of asset protection planning, we would lean in favor of keeping your home indebted um, because that way you don't have any equity in it that's available to a creditor. But the problem is if you're thinking about putting it into a brokerage account, that's also available to a creditor. So there's not any meaningful asset protection arguments that we're trying to make here. So um, after thinking all those things through, about the best I can give you is if you're excited about having a debt-free house, go for it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. That's why I've tried to say again and again, there's nothing wrong with the Dave Ramsey plan. There's nothing wrong with paying off your house. Uh, And I like the way that you're approaching it, where just set the money aside. That way, if something comes up that you want it for, you've got it. You're not paying much interest at this point in your amortization schedule. And if two or three years from now, you decide, you know what, let's go ahead and wipe out that house payment, go ahead and do it. So just be careful that you don't have the money invested all in stocks if you're thinking about that, lest there be some significant market downturn. But I don't have a logically correct answer for you. I think it comes down to what what makes you and your wife feel better. That's how I would answer it. All right. Thanks for your advice. <laughs> I don't know if it was worth anything, but at least that's, uh, that's honestly uh, what I thought it was. We go now to Wayne in Arkansas. Wayne, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey, I really appreciate you taking my call. Um, kind of an interesting question, something I'm kicking around here into the year, but we have a seven-year-old daughter, and this year had a second daughter. And my question is, we I have a Coverdell savings account for college for each daughter that I've opened up, and I'm putting the max in, which is $2,000 per year, which is going to be a benefit at some point, but isn't realistically not going to pay for a full four years of college. I've also got a 529 on my oldest daughter that we have put um, considerable money in that by the time she's 18, if she needs to tap into it, will be um, quite a bit of money, I feel like, if things continue. My question is this, is it worth opening a second 529 for the second daughter or pump the first 529 given that my oldest daughter will be out of college by the time the second daughter needs it, or it might look better with her not having any money to her name other than the Coverdale, and then change the uh, name on the 529 to the younger daughter. Does that make sense? It does. Interesting wrinkle on it. Um, Short answer is, I don't know, but let me try to think it through with you. How much money are you investing? So you're maxing out the ESAs each year, the Coverdells, for $2,000 for each child. Is that correct? Yes, which I feel like is a great benefit. I don't get any tax benefit on it, but I've, I've got better investment choices, and it's got more flexibility down the road. So I, 
And, but in the reality, $2,000 a year is not going to pay for a college degree 20 years from now. Right. Um, on the 529, we're putting in, it's not, we're withdrawing a little bit of money, but kind of some big gifts here and there. It's probably going to average around five to $8,000 per year. Okay. And are your, uh, are your daughters in, um, any kind of private school or are they in a government school or, or what's, what are they, what are you doing for their schooling and anticipating doing for their primary and secondary education? Uh, public school. Okay. We have a very good public district okay. and I'm comfortable with that. Okay. Yes. So the reason I asked that question is the 529 accounts uh, recently were opened up for one of the changes that happened under the, uh, what do they call it? The tax cut and jobs act or something of 2017 all these stupid names that they come up with the trump tax reform of uh, that was passed in late 2017 one of the significant changes that happened in the tax code related to that uh, law was uh, that now 529 funds can be used for uh, secondary for any for k through 12 private education or religious schools of any kind of private or religious schools up to $10,000 per year previously that was forbidden under the terms of the 529 account, but was previously allowed for a Coverdell educational savings account. And so the reason I'm pointing it out to you is there's now an additional increased reason for many parents to consider funding 529 accounts more heavily if they think that they can make use of those funds for private school tuition. Uh, and and if they think that they can make the investments grow in such a point where it is um, where it's available. Now, your question is specifically, if you put the money into, if you put additional contributions into a 529 account with your daughter as the beneficiary, sorry, your younger daughter as the beneficiary, then that could make your older daughter look more impoverished for the purpose of of uh, financial aid applications. Uh, and so therefore she might be eligible for more need-based aid because she d is not the beneficiary of a large 529 account. Is that, is that an accurate uh, of the plan that you're trying to get at? Well, some, I may be somewhat backwards from that. I, I have a uh, 529 for my older daughter. I have not yet opened one up for the younger daughter. And I'm just wondering if, I, if, if that's a wise move or not down the road where given that you can switch the beneficiary um two ways to look at it i don't know if i try and and get one daughter through college and if there's any money left switch it to the younger one after she starts college or if the older one gets an academic scholarship just keep putting money into it and then switch it to the younger one after it looks like she has no money to her name type of a deal or flip it now and put it all on the younger one and let the older one solve that problem when we get there in, in you know, 10 years. Um, I just didn't know if there was a 529 strategy for multiple children that was known and, and a way to, to structure it now or it would work better in the future. I love the question. It's a question I have never thought of and never researched and never worked through. Uh, so I don't know the answer to it. Um, and I would think that in general, the so the only principles I could give you and then just point you towards further research with somebody who would be more qualified in that area. And the best people to look for 
I for, I'm forgetting the name right now, uh, but there is an organization of of college financial aid planners. Um, back when I was a financial advisor, I met with a couple of these guys, and I was super impressed with that all they basically do is help parents plan their financial aid strategy for college. And if I were you, I would search them out, somebody in that organization, and I would talk with them because you are in an ideal situation for such a consultation. The major problem that many parents um the major error they commit is they wait until their child is heading into college to make that call. But with you with a one-year-old and a seven-year-old and the fact that you have clarity around your, your school strategy, you're planning to keep your kids in the government school until graduation. That means you don't need to spend money there. And with the fact that during those college years, you are already saving for that, you can do some cool plans. Now, I think that probably the biggest thing is who's the owner and who's the beneficiary. So if you are the, in both cases of the 529 account, you are the owner of the account. And so it doesn't really matter who is the beneficiary of the account, you're the owner. And so if you complete the free application for federal student aid, the FAFSA form, if you complete that form, that asset is going to be listed as one of your assets. And it's going to be understood that, and it'll come in under your consideration, not so much other people. So uh, that's the, the key. Now, the only way you get around those owner rules, in my knowledge, is if you change the owner to somebody that's not reflected on that basic form, the FAFSA form. So the most obvious example here would be things like grandparents. But the challenge is, if you are, if the student is receiving the distribution during those college years, then you, uh, then, then that's going to be counted as their income. So... <laughs> All I've done is muddy the waters. I have to simply say, I don't know the answer. Look for an organization that uh, has financial advisors that specifically around college, there's a, a certification and designation on this industry. I'm sorry, I don't know it off the top of my head, but um, I will I will put a note. And at the end of the show, after I record the Q&A show, I'll pause and I'll try to put that info in at the end of today's Q&A show so that I can give you the proper referral to that organization. And if I were you, I would pay for a consultation, get an hour of advice from somebody from that organization. That's the best I got for you, Wayne. Okay. I, I really appreciate it very much. Absolutely. And good for you for, uh, I guess, being so proactive uh, with your daughter's schooling. Now, my big challenge to you is make sure they're ready to make a good decision about college and then make sure that there are big opportunities for uh, that, that that, that, that they're prepared for it. Because unfortunately, I think we've all seen so now, so many people who, um, uh, who they had all the financial aid figured out, but they didn't have everything else figured out. So the best is to have the, their character develop, have their, you know, their, what they're going to college for, et cetera, all that stuff. And then many ways, in my opinion, that's harder than the financial aid. Financial aid, those, those advisors will have a clear answer. We go now to Florida. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey, Joshua. Uh, Alan in Florida here. Uh, just want first want to say thank you for the show. I've been listening for three years. That's my pleasure. Thank you for for being here. Uh, my question is about uh, what's fair and reasonable. Uh, what is a reasonable compensation for an advisor serving a woman in her 60s living on Social Security and pension, stocks and bonds and IRA accounts, over $1 million, no business, no complicated planning needs, no budget issues, um, something what I would call a plain vanilla uh, financial planning situation as it can be. 
is it unreasonable for me to expect that such a service um, for on advisory side should not exceed over say five thousand dollars a year? It's not unreasonable for you to think anything that you want. So if you are the if you are the client or this woman is the client, the, it's the client's job to go and choose whatever they think is going to best serve them. So you, in the circumstances that you described, um, a woman in her 60s receiving some Social Security payouts and a pension payouts with a million dollars in retirement accounts, there's no shouldn't have to pay anybody. <laughs> you you can she can just simply put her social security checks and her pension checks in the bank. Um, there are so many discount brokerages that'll sell her uh, a, a mutual fund portfolio without any expenses associated with it. She doesn't have to pay anybody. So the question comes down into what kind of service is she looking for, and how can she best get um, that service? So why does she want financial advice in the first place? Well, she's somebody that cannot be a DIY investor. She needs an advisor to keep her comfortable of staying invested in the market long term. Um, currently, she has a Dave Ramsey EOP or what they call, uh, I guess, their local recommended advisor um, who charges 1.7% uh, asset management fee and has... Uh, her invested in DFA uh, conservative model, dimensional fund advisors um, portfolio solution. Right. Um, and based on what, based on my analysis, this portfolio basically it hasn't changed for ten years for her uh, that she was invested in, and so there was no changes from conservative to to moderate or to defensive. Uh, so she was in this model all this time. Um, she had her, you know, four quarterly meetings a year. So based on the uh, appearance, uh, it seems that the advisor has done well on quantity and quality of the touches, um, checking in with the client and overall was professional, but just looking at the portfolio, like it looks like it's on the expensive side and, you know, easily quantifying, you know, the, potential savings from say going to Vanguard over the next, you know, 20 years. I mean, we're, we're talking about over a million dollars here. Um, so I was basically asked to, you know, give an opinion on the portfolio and, um, she was conscious herself about the costs now that, you know, Vanguard and a lot of other platform, um, advisors that are lower fee are, you know, advertising everywhere. So, um, so, so that's what basically where you know this all started, and um, I reviewed the portfolio. It, I mean, it looks like this DFA portfolio actually underperformed any com every comparative uh, or similar portfolio in, in the industry out there, even before the fees. So it seems like Vanguard is a no-brainer with their like uh, advisor solution that can be all in under 0.4 percent compared to 1.7 and potentially maybe even, you know, better performance over time. So I'm just trying to check myself. Is it like unreasonable for me to think that, um, you know, somebody with a simple situation like that with, uh, you know, assets 
where they are and nothing nothing complicated that you know that they should be paying like this this much for the service Right. So this is the thorniest problem in the financial world. And the the solutions will largely be driven by your background. Uh, so there are uh, there is a whole swath of listeners to this show who are right now um, absolutely shocked that anybody in their right mind would pay uh, almost 2% per year to own a bunch of index funds. They can't believe that. They don't understand why anybody could pay 2% per uh, per year for index funds. And there are a whole bunch of this swath of listeners, uh, there are a whole bunch of bogleheads who would say that is absolutely the most ridiculous thing ever conceived of. And in fact, not only should this this client leave, but that advisor should probably you know tarred and fe- be tarred and feathered and run out of town on a rail. <laughs> because how could they in good conscience charge this person 1.7%? Um, there are a whole lot of other people who look at that and say, well, you know, I'm not sure, and but it's probably pretty normal because to pay 1.7% on a portfolio of a million dollars of assets is not entirely, um, is not at all abnormal. And with regard to industry norms, she's paying a total lower cost because of the DFA approach. She's paying a total lower cost of um, uh, than many other people who are, who are paying 1.7% plus active mutual fund management, et cetera. The problem with a million bucks is this. It gets you in to a lot of advisors in terms of their minimum asset size, but it doesn't give you any deep discounts on that significant, it doesn't give you any deep discounts on um, the value of the services. So if she had $5 million, she could get easily get those fees with that advisor down um, to a lower level. Uh, but with this, with $1 million, it's hard to do that. So here would be the first recommendation that I would give, that I would give. I would not be one who would say to somebody, you should leave or you should not leave purely based upon the money. And I would caution you from giving her that advice. I have seen and worked with enough investors who are very good at blowing themselves up to be convinced that there is a tremendous value of a good financial advisor. There are some people, most of whom do things like listen to personal finance podcasts, who are thrilled with the concept of sitting down and looking at their investments every month. They are thrilled with um, studying what's happening in the market. They love to read books on investing, which keep them insulated against their fears. And for these people, they are really in a good, um, they love it. And so they they don't want to pay anybody else. But that's not the norm. Most people, I think, do find value from a good advisor. I don't know if this advisor is a good advisor or not. And the only way that I would know to do that is, is she making good decisions? And is she proving herself to be a good a good decision maker? Nothing that you have described raises a red flag about this advisor um, in terms of what they've done. If they've chosen a portfolio of investments, if those investments are properly chosen, then um, things can be good. I'm very nervous about, I've, I've not gone out and shopped dimensional funds, um, but I'm very, uh, you know, to see what their performance is compared to other um, classes. Um, The problem with doing that in any particular phase, it needs to be analyzed carefully, but the problem is what phase in a market are you? So sometimes value outperforms growth, sometimes growth outperforms value, sometimes you just get unfortunate timing. 
But I would be very nervous about your making a decision there without having had those conversations with her advisor. Um, a good advisor will spend a lot of time just keeping making a good investment and helping people stay comfortable with it. Now, if this woman is to the point where she doesn't need that kind of handholding, she doesn't need that kind of help, then she should go get things cheaper. If she does need that kind of handholding, if she does need that kind of help, then she should keep paying the advisor um, their fees. But it comes down to, does she need that? Does she value that? Is she a nervous Nelly who's going to um, bail uh, when all of a sudden next month uh, the market declines by 15%, by 20%? Is that going to put her plan in jeopardy? And then the other thing is you have to assess the advisor's value with regard to other financial planning services. It may be at this point in time that she doesn't need any other significant financial planning services. Perhaps her tax plan is buttoned up, her estate plan is buttoned up, her retirement distribution plan is buttoned up, and she doesn't really need it. And so in that case, yeah, she, should, she can go and, and, and pay less money. What I would recommend is that she, and possibly with you, if you have a close relationship, that she go and meet with the advisor and that she express her concern um, and give the advisor a chance to demonstrate his value. What has he done? And if he's not giving value and he's not delivering value, and if he can't point that out, then she should leave. Go shop. Fire him. Go find someone else. If he is demonstrating value, if he is showing what's done, and if she appreciates that value, then she can stay. Um, it's it's her right to do that, and she needs to find something that she's comfortable with. So I think it's good for her to be soliciting your opinion. It's always helpful to get information from knowledgeable people. I would just caution you from. Uh, I would caution you from assuming that your understanding of life is the same as her understanding of life. Because her advisor, if they're doing a good job, giving her the annual service, things like that, they're. Um, um, it, it's, it, yeah, it, it's tough. Now, here would be my best recommendation of, of, of a potential solution. If her situation is that simple, then considering asking this, asking the advisor to discount their services. Some advisors refuse to discount on on principle, but most will discount um, if requested. And so, if if she doesn't seem like uh, she's going to have any, <clears throat> excuse me, any major changes, she has a simple situation. Her investment plan is well established. Then. Um, and if she just needs to talk quarterly, then ask the, ask the advisor if they'll discount. Um, and maybe they'll discount her by you know 30%, and that would bring her fees down to 1.2 or 1.3. And now you can compare that against the Vanguard advisor option. Now you can compare that against other competing advisors and see. So... In in summary, it's kind of, it's a hard question to answer because it's th these things are a little fluffy. Um, you can you can run the math all day long and prove that if she will pay forty basis points instead of one hundred and seventy basis points of direct fees on the investments, you can run that math and you can prove that in thirty years she will have more money with the only forty basis points of of investments. But now your question is, why should she pay 40 basis points to any advisor when she could just go and buy a fund? You know, my friend Jim Collins would say, listen, it's crazy to even pay Vanguard advisors. Um, just go and buy the, the total stock market index fund, put all the money in that, maybe 25% in the bond fund, and get you know, 15 basis points of expenses instead of 15 plus 40. So you have to, at every point along the way, you have to say, what's the value that I'm getting for this? And the same thing applies everywhere in life. So 
you know, I don't own a Mercedes Benz, but lots of people own Mercedes Benz and they're thrilled with it. So why don't I own one? Well, it's not the right fit for me. It's not what I'm looking for. It's not what I want. Uh, and that's the world that we're, that we're dealing with, in, uh, with here. The, the only difference is there is a possibility, I would say, there is a possibility that, that financial advisor can make a big difference in her life and in her long-term returns. Because what has been shown many times is for some people, the hand-holding that a financial advisor brings, the good financial planning that a, brand, that a financial advisor brings will keep them invested through the difficult times, thus assuring them of their investment outcomes, thus being worth their fee. I, I don't know an intellectually honest better answer than that. That's the best I can do to be fair to the arguments from all sides, to be fair to Jack Bogle and his arguments, to be fair to the financial uh, arguments, I have a bias given my former involvement in the financial advice industry. I have a bias considering I used to manage money for fees similar to this. And so with that bias, I, it's very evident, um, you know, I have that bias. But in hindsight, I wouldn't send my mother and say, you don't need a financial advisor. I would say you need a good financial advisor and that advice should be fairly priced. And there are a couple different ways you get it. But my, but I wouldn't be scared of my mother working with a good advisor in this kind of circumstance, um, even knowing that there is a substantial fee associated with it. Because for my mom, I would be convinced she was getting if the advisor is good and if I could prove the advisor is good, I'd be happy for her to get that because of the other value. But your situation and this moment's situation might be different. Any follow-up questions to that? I, I hope that's fair to, to, to everyone involved, but I, I can't, I don't know a better honest answer than that. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good answer. Um, in this situation, however, the, the underlying investment, the DFA fund, uh, underperformed by so much that um, I doubt that any discounting on the advisor's fees costs would make make up for that. And being a, the con conservative, I mean, it's a tricky thing for the advisor. She, she, her being the in the conservative allocation model, the expected returns are not high. So mm -hmm. you know, if she has over the last ten years earned ten four percent per year. And uh, advisor fees were 1.7. Right. Um, it's like, well, you know, why wouldn't she be in the treasury bonds <laughs> right, right, right. instead of, uh, you know, in, I'm going to interrupt you to say, yeah, I'm going to interrupt you to say, I agree with you on that. And and if this advisor, in my opinion, one of the duties that a financial advisor has is to help their concerned, usually elderly clients who are living on a retirement portfolio, one of the duties that a financial advisor has is to help that client be educated enough that they could get good returns. If this client is investing and she's got her money in a very conservative bond portfolio and she's paying 1.7% for that, no, I'm, I'm a little offended about that. She would be better served to go buy a fixed annuity. <laughs> guaranteed by an insurance company and do away with the whole advisor fee in the first place. Um, I'm not happy with that at all. And that's one of the things that I, when I talk about behavior modification, a good financial advisor should be working diligently with her to keep her invested in things that are going to make a big difference because this is the number one biggest thing. You said she's 60 years old. Is that how old she is? 
Yeah, about that. Okay, so here let, let's point this out. Okay, so let's assume that we're talking about a net number. If she's investing in a portfolio with an expected return of four percent, and let's just use two percent as a net return, which incorporates the one point seven percent fee that she's being charged plus any other expenses that are internal to the funds. So let's just say on a million dollars, one million dollars present value. Is she going to spend the money um, for herself or is she going to um, leave it for others as, a, as, a, as an inheritance in terms of her own profile? Uh, likely leave, okay. leave as inheritance. She, she's very frugal and has Social Security pension income over $60,000. So she's not really spending even that. Okay. So, so of everything you've said, this to me is the most offensive. And let me, let me show you why. So we've got a million dollar portfolio today. And we're going to invest that portfolio for the benefit of her beneficiaries, her children, grandchildren, charities, whatever, whoever she wants to leave the money for. So let's say a 35-year time horizon. Let's do a 30-year time horizon. Take her to age 90, which would be a statistically normal life expectancy for a woman in her 30s. So let's do 30 years. Now, at a 2% investment return with no money going in or coming out, that means that in 30 years, she would have $1.8 million. Now, let's say that in the same situation, then at that point in time, this this woman um, can be encouraged to invest her money into a portfolio that has a much higher expected rate of return. Let's say that she can invest it into a portfolio that has an expected return of 6% net of fees, if that were possible, 6%. Now, instead of $1.8 million, there's $5.7 million dollars. When she dies at age 90 and leaves the money behind to her beneficiaries. If her advisor is not pushing her diligently in that direction with good education and good financial planning, I don't think they're a good advisor. So that to me is deeply offensive that, that, that any 60-year-old woman who has enough income to maintain a comfortable lifestyle with social security and pension income and who has appropriate insurances, appropriate, you know, she's not in debt, et cetera, and has this portfolio, I want her invested in such a way that that $5.7 million goes to her children and her grandchildren and whatever charity she wants to support or whoever she wants to give it to. I want that money to be $5.7 million, not $1.8 million. So if I were working with her, and you came to my office with her and said, Joshua, why are you charging you know, this woman 1.7%? I would say, because I've gotten her to move out of a stupid portfolio with an expected return net of fees of 2% into this portfolio with an expected return net of fees of 6%. Well, how do I get there? I've got to do a lot of education. I've got to do a lot of handholding. And I've got to do some really good financial planning to solve that fear that she has of the money going down in value so that she can stay invested through the topsy-turvy market market conditions, et cetera. And I got to figure out how to do that for her so that she's comfortable. So of everything you've said, I'm not offended by a 1.7% fee if the advisor is good. But what one of the, the personal definitions that I use for being good is not letting the client drive and just being an order taker. Because if all the advisor is doing is saying, here, complete this 16-question risk profile analysis, oh, look, the risk profile analysis says that you are a conservative investor. So therefore, here is our conservative funds, and you should invest in this conservative portfolio because the risk profile says you're a conservative investor. What's the point of that advisor? There's nothing that that person brings to the table that you can't do with an online 12-question um, behavioral 
questionnaire. That that person is not worth their money. They're not doing their job appropriately. The job is to help educate somebody to a point where you they're clear on their goals so that they become no longer a conservative investor and then figure out how to solve their financial planning needs so that they're comfortable with the decisions they're making. Not that they're hoodwinked. You know, that's hopefully that's coming through loud and clear. I wouldn't work with a 60 year old woman and say, oh, by the way, you need to have, um, yeah, you're a conservative investor, but I'm just sticking you over here. No, it's the client's money. And, and the advisor has the responsibility to help the client do the right thing with their money. But that can be done in a way that point moves her heirs from receiving $1.8 million to $5.7 million. And that's the value of a financial advisor if they're good. Based on that, I don't like this advisor anymore. I think she should shop carefully and um, um, she do that. Because for an advisor to let her sit like that for 10 years, I think is, 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 is not appropriate. But um, talk with them, ask them the questions and give them a chance to defend themselves, but hold their, hold their feet to the fire. Advisors are, here's what happens. Most people don't know how to talk to their advisors and they're scared to talk to their advisors because they don't know what they're doing. Advisor knows these problems. And so she should go to him directly and say, listen, last year on a million dollar portfolio, your fee of 1.7% meant that my portfolio was deducted $17,000. That is a lot of money for a woman who is living on less than 60. That is a huge amount of money. Now, Mr. Advisor, Show me what we got for that money spent. And then think about it, shop, go around, look for other advisors, interview Vanguard, interview other people. And if there's a change needed, I'm, I'm fine with that. Just do it for the right reasons, not just because there's a, a gut reaction against, oh, it's 1.7%. Um, do it for the right reasons. Is that helpful? That was helpful. Follow-up question to shopping, um, if if it comes to that, um, for advisors, uh, I did check out Saladin registry. It seemed like there were like three people in the area or in the whole state that right. fit the description. Um, are you aware of any, um, maybe Christian based networks that are non Dave Ramsey that deal with Vanguard, um, solutions and charge reasonable fees? <laughs> uh, Short answer, not necessarily. So first, I'm always deeply suspicious of anything labeled Christian. Um, I, I don't care for most of that marketing uh, because what happens is a lot of people will latch on to that because they know it's where um, you know where the money is. And so depending on where you are, depending on what culture, what town, what city, et cetera, this culture will vary. But it's, it's kind of like... Um, you know, best advice for somebody who's starting a new network marketing or a direct sales business is go find the biggest mega church in town uh, and identify, label yourself as Christian and then go and find the mega church because that's where you find all your prospects. So I'm usually very suspicious of anything that's labeled Christian. And I would prefer if Christians never labeled their stuff Christian and never kind of led with that as an idea, unless it was specifically required um, and, and just simply started with actually doing things that are good. Uh, because what happens is when stuff gets labeled Christian, then you get mediocre results that are all defended in the name of religion. And, that, and that's terrible. I would rather work with a deeply competent and ethical financial advisor who didn't care two wits about Christianity than some, you know, uneducated, bad performing, you know, unknowledgeable 
person who says, but I'm a Christian, so you should work with me. The fact that you're a Christian does not give you any, any, uh, it doesn't give you anything in the marketplace. You shouldn't be competing on that basis. I'm not interested. I would not be interested in working with people who are Christian just because they're Christian, because Christian doesn't mean competent. And unfortunately to Christian shame, to the shame of Christians everywhere, many times they, we have a reputation for incompetence and, and that is not a good thing. So, uh, as you can tell, I'm not that keen on Christian organizations. Now, with that in mind, there are organizations that I think have tried because there is a difference. There are important differences in worldview that will come through. And there are many organizations that have tried to reflect that. And usually a Christian who is trying to plan their finances will have a different method of analysis than somebody who is not a Christian, not in everything. But in many things, and this and, and that does need to come through. There are organizations that that have done a good job. I think probably the most prominent one would be Ron Blue's organization. Ron Blue took over for um, uh, uh, Larry Burkett in Crown Financial Ministries, and he came from a, an accounting background. They developed a financial advice firm, uh, and I think they've done that. Uh, they've done a, a lot of that in that world. Um, that's probably the biggest one that I'm aware of. Paladin certainly has no affiliation with anything Christian. And again, that's not necessarily a problem. What I would be looking for is I would be looking for somebody who is competent, who can have a good relationship with her. And if that person is a Christian, awesome. But that needs to be proved out in reality, not in terms of just somebody saying I'm a Christian. If, if anybody's gone to any church for about two, you know, two minutes, you know, there is plenty of hypocrisy inside the doors of, of Christian churches. And there is plenty of sin. There is plenty of, of scandal that's allowed to, to um, continue. And so just the labeling Christian doesn't bring me a whole lot of confidence in anything. I want to see somebody who's competent. Um, and if that person is a Christian, great. But let, let's start with competence first uh, versus versus the other. Now, this is a hard problem to solve. The best thing is there are, in every area, there are advisors. So first, if a kind of a national firm is not appropriate, what I would start by doing is what you can do is work in the Christian community and ask for referrals. So in any decently sized um, community, then the people who are the leaders in that community will know one another and they'll know how to filter people out. And so if you go to somebody who is a, uh, a competent um, uh, insurance broker, uh, I'm thinking of the community, you know, here in South Florida where I live, um, I knew who all of the competent people were. And I was friendly with the competent people at all the different firms who were actually serious and who were actually legitimate you know that 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 they 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 didn't just say Christian because that was the cool thing to do. It was a real r real thing, and I could list several advisors that I would be happy to have referred business to, um, who came in under that rubric. And the best solution that you have there is network around in the community, ask some of the, the local attorneys who you might know from the Christian community, um, ask and ask for referrals from those people to who is who would be a good person to interview for the job. That would be my recommendation. That was great. Both supported my uh, 
beliefs about Christian marketing and uh, gave some ideas. Um, in case you can't, in case you didn't hear it, <laughs> you want to set Joshua off. Just you know, label your business Christian, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, I, uh, I, uh, it really bothers me <laughs> very, very much because it's it's a scandal and it's a shame to Christians anywhere that that stuff is allowed to go on. It should not be allowed to go on. And, and, and unfortunately, what has happened is is the idea of Christianity has become this basic concept that if you just say you're a Christian, everything's great, instead of actually demonstrating things in a real way. And the same thing applies in business. Um, it's, it's very, very shameful. Another caller from Florida. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hello? Joshua? Yes, sir. Go ahead. I want to thank you, first of all, for uh, everything you've done, not only for me, but for like my family and friends. I've um, saved a lot of money, uh, especially with uh, uh, all your advice for investing um, in my Roth IRA and everything else. Now, well, my question is this. Uh, me and my dad have the same name, and uh, I uh, kind of did a one really big mistake before knowing you. I was a co-signer for his second house. At the same time, he left me his first house, which uh, I started uh, putting into my taxes. You know, the, uh, uh, what do you call that for? Uh, Your homestead exemption? You know, the int- no, 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 not, not homestead exemption. Mm-hmm. Interest, exactly. mm-hmm. interest deduction. Exactly. Interest reduction. Now, the house is not in my name. It's in my parents' name, both of my parents' names. I have the same name as my dad, except my middle initial. Now, I don't know how to transfer this house over to me legally so I could homestead exemption it and have the cloud over my head that I might possibly get audited by the IRS, which I don't think I'm doing anything illegal, which I, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm in a gray area. How is that? Okay. So first, are you in a gray area with regard to your actual actions? Have you done something where if somebody knew the complete facts, they would say, no, nah, this was kind of shady? Or are you just worried about it because of the confusion over the name? No, the, the only, well, first of all, I want to sleep sleep at night. And second of all, like you have that rule about not, having not going anything. to jail. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Uh-oh, we lost you. <laughs> Let me pause for a moment, see if he comes back on the line. All right, you're back. Right. So go ahead. So we, we, rule is we want to stay out of jail. Keep going. Yes, we got, we, I want to stay out of jail. Well, I want to stay out of jail. At the same time, I want to go ahead and I'm, I'm leaving a lot of money because mm-hmm. my, dad, my, my dad's second house, which is under my dad's name, and me as being a co-signer, he put that house in homestead exemption. Mm-hmm. So the house that my mom and my dad left me, which I haven't done any kind of paperwork on it. Uh, uh, it's not homestead exemption, so I'm paying a lot of taxes as we speak right now. Right, right. So the, my only point was, let's start with the facts, because facts matter. Okay. And if okay. the facts are that you haven't done anything questionable, then let's proceed on that basis, and let's give whatever defense we need to give as appropriate to get people off your back, but but you are in a place where the facts are on your side. So as long as you haven't done anything shady, the facts are on your side. Now, second question, is there currently anything that has happened that is making you concerned? Are you currently under audit? Is somebody currently denying something that you're trying to do because of this potential confusion? 
Uh, no. Okay. So no, I just want to have I just want to have a clean slate. Right. Right. So. With those two questions being answered the way that you've done, you haven't done anything wrong, and there's nobody even knowing that you're concerned about confusion, don't get yourself worked up in a knot about something that hasn't happened yet. Uh, because there, the chances are nothing's going to happen. Uh, first of all, you haven't done anything wrong. And if you have done anything wrong, you have a very simple explanation. You and your dad have the same name with the exception of a middle initial. And so therefore there is this little confusion, but anybody who needed to see the records, if they had a question about something, you would just say, look, this was my dad's house. Here's what happened. So my recommendation is don't worry about it. Um, Good chance if you do have middle initials, then you, he'll be listed as so and so with middle initial A, and you'll be listed as so and so with middle initial B. And so I would just ignore the whole potential confusion, keep the records, and file the paperwork as appropriate. And then if anybody asks the question, you just simply clarify: This was my dad's house; it was left to me. Here is what happened, and and this is what we're doing. I don't think you have a problem. Okay, so so if I with the uh, I well, the, the most concern I have is with the IRS. So the IRS would not, if I get into some solution, they would go ahead and see that it's not some sort of like fraudulent action. Right, right, right. So I mean, you get a, so you get a phone. Sorry, you get a letter. You don't get phone calls from the IRS. You get a letter, okay. and they say, um, "What's your first name?" Jonathan. They say, "Dear Jonathan, we noticed that you have filed for this um, homestead interest, you know, interest tax deduction here, but we think this is wrong because um, you actually did it on this other house here." Now, what would you do in that circumstance? Uh, well, I have no idea. Well, they wrote you a letter, <laughs> so you sit down and you write them a letter. And you say, "Dear IRS person, yeah." You say, "Dear IRS person, here's what you don't know. My dad's name is Jonathan. My name is Jonathan, and so he owned this property previously. We separately had this other transaction. We co-signed, and so here's why you're confused. But this is what I've done, and it's entirely right. It's simple. The IRS would 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 look at the records, and probably your middle initials are on the records, on the property records. Usually, somebody will use a full legal name, which is not usually just first and last name. There's usually at least a middle initial uh, with these kinds of things. And they say, "Oh, we got uh -huh. mixed up because Jonathan and his dad had the same name." So, no problem, no foul, everything's good. It's not a problem. This is now now to, to since the, the the property I'm currently living in is the one that what my parents left me which is the one I'm declaring on taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, could I, could I, without having my name in the, in the loan, could I still homestead it? Your ability. So you are concerned about being able to take your homestead exemption on the property that you're living in for your Florida property taxes. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So for that purpose, your loan doesn't matter. You simply okay. file the appropriate documents with the local county officials and you establish your homestead is, you know, one, two, three Maple Street. I live here and therefore this is my homestead exemption. And as long as you're not simultaneously trying to claim your homestead exemption on another piece of property, that'll be fine. They don't know anything about the loan other than the fact that there's a loan recorded at the, you know, if there's a loan on the property, the loan, the deed, the, the, the mortgage has been recorded down in the, the legal systems so that any buyer of the house would know that there's a lien on the property, but that doesn't matter for the purpose of your local property tax exemption. That only matters 
for that particular mortgage company uh, and for that particular lien situation. But your mortgage company doesn't care whether your home, you're, you're putting a, a homestead exemption on the property for your local property taxes or not. These are disconnected systems. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So, should I? Should me and my dad make some sort of paperwork, like a legal? I don't, I don't even. Oh, should I put my name in the deed? Is your or dad alive or dead? Anything? Alive. He's alive. Okay. So why is he giving you the house? Well, this is what happened. Uh, back back when, uh, well, you know, the economy hit the the tank. You know, maybe two thousand and nine. It was kind of a high price. My parents decided to move from a smaller house. To a, you know, to a nicer house, and then they bought it. But at the same time, they weren't looking to keep the second house. So the second house, they kind of like gave it away, like you know, we just gonna give it back to the bank. Like they didn't give, they didn't really care about it. At the same time, I I, I was going through you know a divorce and a lot of other issues, mm-hmm. and I needed a place to stay. So I was talking to my dad, hey, you know, let me stay in the second house, and kind of fell on me, you know, and um, I kind of. Took it out of, uh, you know, I we owed like three or four months. I took it out of uh, almost close to foreclosure. I kept my parents' name on it, and I've been living ever since. Okay. All right. So let me, because I want to, I want to help you get this right from a bigger perspective than what you are asking, or at least let's get it as right as we can. Um, can you give okay. me a, a name, make up something, but like a street neighbor so we can identify these two houses with a street name so that I can keep them okay. straight. I, I live in Royal. Okay. So you live in Royal house next. And yeah. the other house is where? My, uh, my parents live in Lake. Okay. So your parents live in the Lake house. You live in the Royal house. Now, uh, the Royal house, who is the owner of the Royal house? Okay. The, well, the bank owns the house. The mortgage is under my, my dad's name and my mom's name. Okay. Dad and mom. So not the mortgage. Who is on the deed? Are your dad and mom um, owners of that house? They have joint ownership of that house? Yes. Both of their names are indeed. Okay. And you're living in the state of Florida. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So in the state of Florida, the standard thing when they do that um, is they own an equal, undivisible interest in that property. It's called tenancy by the entireties. And they both equally own the full interest in that house. Now, you are living in the royal house that they own right now. Is that correct? That's correct. You are paying them rent? for that? Is that correct? Or you're paying the mortgage payment and they're considering that to be rent? Uh, yeah, I'm paying the mortgage. I'm, I'm doing everything for the house. Okay. I'm paying the mortgage. Uh, they just left it to me. I'm not paying them anything. Okay. But they didn't actually leave it to you because they own the house. They may have told you virtually that, hey, Jonathan, listen, our plan is that you own the house, but right now they own that house. Is that is that accurate? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Now, your parents live in the lake house. Is that right? That's correct. And who owns the lake house? It's under my dad's name and I'm the co-signer. Okay. So uh, the co-signer doesn't matter because that's who owes okay. money. So, so focus clearly on the words because you need to understand the words clearly. The owner of the house is your dad. Um, you just simply owe a lot of money on a, on an asset that you don't own. <laughs> so that's your actually, problem. I, actually, actually, you know what? Um, I, uh, that the lake house might be under my name. Uh, under your name exclusively or under your dad's name and your name? Well, on, uh, the loan is under my dad's name and my name, but I think the deed is under my name. 
Okay. So now this is good then because you own a house, but somebody else has a mortgage liability on it. So you need to be clear on these because this is what matters. Yes. It matters what the deed says. So first assignment for you is you better go and look at that deed and figure out. And you can just look up look it up in the county um, tax records online and look up the address for that house and see who is listed as the owner of that house. It doesn't matter who is indebted on the house. That's a separate thing than what we're trying to figure out here. What matters is the owner of the house. Okay. So currently okay. you own the lake house. Is that right? Yes. All right. But your parents live there. And then your dad yep. and mom own the royal house, but you live there. Yes. All right. How much is the royal house worth if you sold it in today's market? Uh, 230 maybe. Okay. $230,000. How much did your mom and dad pay for the house when they bought it? 80 grand. Okay. But uh, they took some money out, so the total loan is like 147000 So I repeat, the loan is not the question, and I'm, and I'm not mad at you. Okay. I, want, I want you to get this right, because okay. what I'm trying to calculate, the reason I asked you those two questions, what is the house worth in today's dollars, and what did they pay for it, is because they have a basis in the property, what's called a tax basis. And so right now... The $80,000 is their, is their basis. It would have to be adjusted, but let's keep it simple. Let's just assume $80,000 is their basis. But if today the property were sold or given away, there's $150,000 of taxable gain here, which needs to be factored in. That's where the taxing authorities are going to get involved. The taxing authorities don't care how much you owe on the mortgage. Mortgage debt is not taxable income. So they could have borrowed $230,000 out of it. doesn't matter. The point is when the house is sold, then that gain is recognized. So we need to know what the current value, the current value is $230,000. They paid $80,000 for it. Now I want to know the mortgage balance. What is the current mortgage balance on, on the Royal house? 147, 150. Okay, so let's call Somewhere it $150,000, and um, that's enough for now. Now, the lake house, okay. um, how yeah. much did you pay for the lake house when you bought it? Uh, 206 Okay. How much is the lake house currently worth if it were sold? Uh, close to $300,000. i am guessing, I'm guessing two eighty, maybe two ninety. Okay. All right, so let's call it two ninety, and let's put the difference. So it's worth two hundred ninety thousand dollars. And what is the current mortgage balance on the lake house? Uh, around a hundred and I'm guessing a hundred and ninety, maybe. Okay. All right. Now you currently own the lake house, and so you have been taking a a homestead exemption on the property taxes that you owe for the lake house. Is that correct? No, my dad is taking the homestead exemption and the taxes for the lake house. Got it. But he doesn't own the house. Uh, no. Okay. Boy, yeah. I, I feel like I'm such a great area. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so this you would don't be. Know my last name, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so this would be where you may have a problem because the owner of the house is the one who takes the homestead exemption. Or is, is the one who could take the homestead exemption. Now, don't worry. If you do have a problem, you may have to go back and recalculate it. But the good news is, your mom and dad own a house. 
and you own a house, and so this should work out. And these houses are similar in value. Uh, there's 230 and 290 is not a huge difference in value. And so your property taxes are probably somewhat similar. So this isn't the end of the world. Now, your your challenge is, and if you ever do this again, you need to be a little bit more careful here. Um, you shouldn't just take over people's mortgage payments. Um, that's a bad way to do this. If you ever do this again, don't take over people's okay. mortgage payments because you're not legally entitled to the mortgage interest deduction if you pay their mortgage payments. You have no property rights if you don't own the house. You shouldn't do it this way. You should you should have a clear transaction, and if you are going to live in the royal house, house, then you should pay your dad rent on the royal house, and he should pay the mortgage payments himself. You should keep these things separate, even among family. Now, if the if you're doing it for financial reasons, let's say that you're going to pay your dad you know, $1,200 of rent. Well, that's fine. Just pay your dad a $1,200 rent payment each, each month. And then once per year at Christmas time, your dad can give you a gift of a check for $14,400. But don't not pay him rent for a house that he owns. That's where we do start to get into some gray areas. Um, because if he is owning a house and he's renting it out at less than market rent, and you got a problem. So you should pay him an appropriate market rent. He should pay for his expenses on the house. He should treat it as a rental property. Um, and and you and then if he wants to give you a gift each year, fourteen thousand four hundred dollars, that's fine. Uh, so this is a confusing situation that does need to be yes. set right. Now, why are you trying? To, what is your concern at this point? Why you're trying to make these changes? What's the problem that you're trying to fix? Well, the the thing has come up that my parents want to sell the lake house. Okay. So if that if that happens, I'm kind of like in a no, I'm in, I'm in the air, I guess you could say, because then I won't own a house. Right. So and what, then I'm like, right. I'm like, okay, and and then the IRS could come in and say, okay, you know how how in the world is this going on and that going on, and what happened to the money from this house and. You, you, you know what I mean? I do, I do. So don't worry about the IRS, okay? Because the chances of your being okay. audited are, are pretty low. Now, if you do get audited, you will need help to straighten this out because you do have a problem, but don't worry about it prematurely. Only worry about it when you get the letter. Okay. And at that point in time, you'll do this. But you do want to clean things up. So your parents want yes. to sell your house. <laughs> no, the, no, you know, oh, hold on. Yeah. I, I'm being I'm Exactly. Sorry. Your parents want to sell your house, which is the lake house. Do they want to yes. buy another house? They want to. They want to downsize. Okay. So yes, they're going to buy a little like uh, an apartment or something small. Okay. Let me think for a moment about the situation here and try to understand. So here is your basic problem: when you sell your lake house, because that's legally what it is. When you sell your lake house, you are going to have. A, you're going to sell the house for $290,000. And you're going to have a tax basis in that property of about $84,000, the difference between $290,000 and $206,000. So you're going to have $84,000 of capital gains that you owe because you're selling your lake house. Wow. Okay. That's your real problem. Ordinarily, yeah. if, if your parents owned the house, actually themselves, if they actually owned the house, 
then they could just sell the lake house. And then under the section 121 exclusion, they would be able to exclude the $84,000 of gain from their income. And so they wouldn't have any tax considerations. But in your situation, you're going to owe tax on $84,000 of capital gains when you sell your lake house. Yes. So this is your problem. Now, do you have any intention of moving from the royal house that your parents own? No, actually, I, I'm uh, I'm happy where I'm at. Okay, you know, it's, that's a house where I I lived. You know, like most of my life. So right, you know, it's it's a uh, I don't know. You know, kind of get attached to things. Maybe I should just go ahead and sell it too. <laughs> right. Well, so at this point in time, I need to refer you to an accountant. You need to sit down with a with a, a local accountant and go through and and sort this problem out. Because here's the other problem that you own. Not only do you own a house that you're going to sell for two hundred ninety thousand dollars, and you're going to have eighty four thousand dollars of uh, capital gain, but now your parents own a house, a rental house. That has uh, 230, 230 minus 80, that has $150,000 of capital gain in it. So when they sell their rental house, they're going to have $150,000 of capital gains. So this is your big problem, not necessarily the homestead exclusion. And at this point, it's too thorny for me to give you any constructive advice in this format. But you do need to go, you need to pull together your records, you need to to get a copy of your deeds, your your tax records, you need to pull together whatever records you can find from the last 10 years of how much has been paid in taxes, you know, kind of how the mortgage balances, etc. And you've got to figure out how to... um, uh, how to make this how to make this problem go away, and you need to talk it through with your accountant uh, to figure out how do we fix this problem. Now, chances are one of the simpler pr- ways for you to solve it would be to figure out some way for you to move into the house that you own, which is the lake house. For them to move into the house that they own, which is the royal house, each of you to live there for a couple of years, each of you to sell your properties, and then you, know, you, you can you can claim the Section 121 exclusion. You may also look at, uh, since now both of you own a rental house, you may also look at um, simply doing a like-kind exchange, doing a, is it, oh, I always get confused if it's 1035 or 1031, I think real estate 1031 for physical property, do a like-kind exchange of one property to another property. And so if your parents could do a like-kind, if you could do a like-kind exchange from your lake house property into another house, then you can avoid the tax on paying the tax on that gain. But you'll need to think through a couple of these strategies and try to figure out how do we fix up the financial problem that we face? And then how do we fix out the living situation in terms of what we actually want to do? How do we actually work this out so that everyone who wants to downsize can downsize so that everyone who wants to live somewhere can live somewhere? Um, but you need to uh-huh. talk to a little What about if I... So if I stay in the royal house, I still have a problem with the lake house with the tax. Right. Yeah, because you paid $206,000 for a house that's going to sell for $290,000. So you're going to have $84,000 of long-term capital gains taxes that you will owe on the sale of that real estate. Already. Right. Thank you, Joshua. My pleasure. Call I'm an accountant. Uh, and, 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 and call an accountant and work it through, and uh, you'll be able to figure out the best solution. Any other questions before I go? Okay. 
yeah, for accountants, do you uh, refer to like a service? Or I don't. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I don't. I, I would ask it, around. Joshua. Ask around. Good thing to do is ask around for people in your area. If you know anybody who you think is a, a qualified, especially since we're dealing with real estate here, if you know any friends of yours who own any real estate properties, ask them if they have an accountant that they use. But this is not complicated stuff. It's just complicated doing it verbally in a podcast. And, and a local accountant can sit down with you, write down the numbers properly, work through everything with you, and figure out those solutions. But let this be a lesson to the rest of us. Don't do what Jonathan and his parents did. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, keep things clean and keep things appropriate and think about what's happening. You have two choices. You either don't record anything and you just live in one another's houses and, and don't record anything, which is not the right way to do it. But at least that avoids some of this thorny issues of Jonathan owing a, um, you know, owing a, a mortgage or his Jonathan's dad owing mortgage payments on a house that he doesn't even own uh, or do it right. And so if you if somebody moves into your house, charge them a proper fair market rent and then um, record everything properly to build it out as a rental property, charge them a fair market rent, keep your records. And then if you want to give them a gift each year, um, feel free to give them a gift, but don't, don't do it the way that Jonathan and his parents did it. It's understandable why things like that work out. It's understandable um, in, in the sense of we, we, it, it's, it's understandable that when people are in crisis and the houses are going into foreclosure and we don't know how it's going to, it's understandable. But at that time, get good advice for how to structure it so that you can avoid these these problems down the road. That's it for today's Q&A show. Thank you all so much for calling in. Thank you for listening. As we go, I remind you, um, check out my credit card course, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash credit card course. I continue to get good feedback on that. More students signing up all the time. Um, and I'd love to have many more of you uh, participate in that. I think you'll find it really worth your 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 time and your money. It's a good use of your time and your money, or at least that's what all my students have said, and that's how I designed it. So go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash credit card course. Sign up today. Join me on tomorrow's Q&A show if you would like. Call in at 561-440-7362 at noon Eastern time. Again, 561-440-7362, noon Eastern time tomorrow. I almost forgot about looking up that college planning organization. Uh, I looked it up, but at the moment, I am not confident to specifically recommend any one particular organization. There are a number of competitors, and it's unclear to me. I haven't done the research to be confident enough to say the name of any one of those organizations. Let me explain. In the financial industry, one of the major challenges of the financial industry is that anybody can create a credential or designation program and authorize people to use their marks. And most people don't know what the little numbers and letters and things are that are after people's names. So for example, I have a, I don't know what, half a dozen credentials or whatever that I am still actively enrolled in. And anybody who sees my, my, um, uh, my name, Joshua Sheets, MSFS, SCHFC, CLU, CAP, RHU, REBC, I think that's it. Maybe there's, I don't remember which ones I'm, I'm enrolled in right now, but nobody knows what any of those things mean. There are just a few credentials that have a lot of brand equity that, 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 that people do actually recognize. So for example, the most commonly recognized one in the financial planner space is the certified financial planner credential. The CFP board has worked hard to make that the case. So what has happened over the years is financial advisors have learned that having credentials makes them seem more impressive. After all, if I have a long list of letters after my name, it makes 
me seem more impressive, kind of like the guy that you're used to talking to for your legal work. So if you work with somebody whose name is you know, John Smith, JD LLM, well, JD LLM means something, and most people who are involved in that world know about that. So you can create credential programs, and people who are not involved in that credential program will usually not know very much about what those credentials mean. I don't know anything about the real estate credentials that are available. So if I'm working with a real estate agent who has letters after their name, I don't know what those letters mean. And there's a broad difference in different programs to understand what's actually involved with these different programs. Uh, Give you a personal example. I used to maintain a credential that was called CLTC. It's called a Certification in Long-Term Care Planning. And that credential was, I think, the first credential that I got. I used to, I liked, really liked doing long-term care planning. I sold a lot of long-term care insurance when I was in the insurance business. And it was a very useful class uh, that I took. It was specifically focused on understanding the problem in long-term care planning and specifically focused on the tools and techniques of helping people plan for long-term care expenses. I can't remember. It was either a one or a two-day class followed by a very, fairly simple you know, 30-minute or one-hour test. I don't remember the details on it. But it was a very useful credential for me because it enhanced my own knowledge and allowed me to more effectively serve people with regard to long-term care planning. But it was nothing in terms of its comparison to its academic uh, competence with something like you know, the chartered financial consultant designation or a CFP designation. CFP board requires eight, I think seven, eight, nine different college classes. They require a fairly intense exam that you have to demonstrate competence in a broad array of, of subjects. The CFP course is certainly much more challenging and much shows a much higher level of knowledge than does the CLTC designation, but it's in a different area. I knew way more. See, the long-term care planning, in my memory, at least when I took the test, was hardly even covered, if at all, on the CFP board exam, but it was the only focus of the class in CLTC in the CLTC world. So this is the problem with different organizations that grant credentials is you never really know exactly what's behind it. So in the world of the college planning, there are a number of different credential programs available. There seem to be some that are probably stronger than others, uh, but some of them are just simply largely marketing organizations. And the thing that I find the most troubling is the heavy marketing of life insurance as a mechanism mechanism for college savings programs. And so many life insurance agents say, well, I'm a certified so-and-so and college planning, but basically it's a thinly veiled discussion of of life insurance marketing. I love life insurance. I think it can be a useful tool. Get very uncomfortable if it's not approached carefully, very, very carefully, especially with that application for life insurance, because I think it's very hard to do well. So I don't want to commend any specific organization right now uh, because I haven't done the research. I haven't spoken to anybody of those organizations. I don't understand what they mean. I'm not sure which organizations or just because something has been around the longest doesn't necessarily make me super confident in it. What I will say is this. There are enough college planners in your town. If you just do a search for college planner, you'll find somebody marketing themselves as a college planner. And it's probably worth a consultation. Usually I find that paying somebody um, you know, a couple hundred bucks for their opinion is some of the cheapest money that you ever spend. So pay a lawyer a couple hundred bucks for their opinion. Pay a financial advisor a couple hundred bucks for their opinion. Pay a college planner a couple hundred bucks for their opinion. A couple hundred bucks spent on an opinion that doesn't involve the purchase of any particular product, um, it goes a lot long, long way towards answering most of the questions. So that's my recommendation to my caller earlier who was looking for information on the 529 account. Hope that helps.